Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of Project MedTech series, MedTech Money. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Kelly Roman from the Fisher-Wallace Laboratories. In this episode, Giovanni and Kelly discuss what he is currently working on at Fisher-Wallace Laboratories, why he chose crowdfunding as a source of capital for his medtech startup, how to crowdfund, what you need to do with the SEC, which platform they used and why they chose it, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Kelly Roman. Kelly, thank you very much for joining us here. This is MedTech Money, the podcast series, which is powered by Project MedTech, sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And I really appreciate you joining this one. We're going to get into the reasons why in a quick second. But the, the point of this podcast that I want to clarify for all these listeners out there is that I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in medtech. And specifically, this particular podcast that you and I are about to do um, truly makes that very true and clear. So my goal here was is that I wanted to extract insights and anecdotal stories from investors, investment bankers, and entrepreneurs like yourself so that we can help those who can benefit from this information and also for generations of entrepreneurs, as well as investors to come. So I, I imagine the audience being a mixture of experts and novices who are listening in today. And so I wanted to also extract your stories, your insights, as well as your advice, so that we can share with what I imagine the being that, that person being the first time founder or CEO, who has no clue on what lies ahead of them on their fundraising journey. So I thought the best place to start would be learning from experienced professionals like yourself. Now, the reason why you and I are here today is I've talked to venture capital firms before. I've talked to entrepreneurs who have raised from venture capital firms before, family offices, angel investors, you name it, the, a corporate, corporate investors. The one thing that we have not discussed yet, and it's a hot topic, industry agnostic, is um, crowdfunding. And you are a med tech company. We'll get into who you are and the company that you're currently building, but you're a med tech company that has successfully raised on a crowdfunding platform. So I'm very excited to learn a lot more about that and also be able to share this information with those who are listening in now. Before we get into all the details, I have three questions that I want to engage the audience listening in to who you are um, and learn a little bit more about yourself. But here they go. The first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or is there anything that I'm missing that you would include? Uh, people and money are are certainly lifeblood. I mean, I I also think um, uh, picking picking a good problem to solve uh, and and 
and having the the means of of solving that problem, of course. But uh, once you have that, then then it's people and money. Yeah. And now having built up the company as far as you've gone, your career that you've built prior to that, if you knew what you know now about being a medtech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently? I would definitely do it over again. Um, and if we had had access to equity crowdfunding, we would have had a much faster trajectory than we had. So uh, I would do it again, knowing that the timeline would be shorter. And then lastly, we're now going to learn about yourself as well as Fisher Wallace. But what does the name of your company mean, Fisher Wallace? Why Fisher Wallace? Fisher uh is my co-founder, Chip Fisher, Charles Avery Fisher. Um, uh, his father, Avery Fisher, uh, founded Fisher Radio, which became Fisher Electronics. Um, he acquired the patents to the technology. And then I, I joined him after his first co-founder, um, Martin Wallace, passed away. He passed away of cancer about a year into the project. Um, and so the name Fisher Wallace was the original name of the company. And it's also now kind of a memorial uh, to, to Wallace. Um, even though I've, I've really replaced Wallace, it's, it's nice to have the, the memory of him in the name of the company. There's always a story behind a name. So that's why I ask. Thank you for sharing that. And then lo and behold, Kelly Roman, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Where do you come from? And tell us that journey of ultimately what led you to become CEO of Fisher Wallace. So uh, yeah, my name is Kelly Roman. I'm co-founder, CEO of Fisher Fisher Wallace, and um, I, you know, I came to medtech not from a, a traditional uh, science or medical background. I I, I did go to Harvard, uh, but was an English major. Uh, I at the time I thought I was going to become a screenwriter. Um, I ended up uh, actually writing a graphic novel for Harper Collins. Uh, spent a number of years doing that. Um, that was successful and was optioned and so forth. Uh, but then I, you know, and I spent some time working in software startups and uh, information technology. I worked at Nielsen kind of before I was making any money as a writer. And when I finished the graphic novel and it was a science fiction graphic novel, um, you know, I was really interested in uh, doing something entrepreneurial. I, I, I enjoyed the writing process, but to me there wasn't kind of enough control uh, I had to depend on way too many other people to, to, to get things done like a movie or TV show or something like that. So, um, you know, I was really, I really knew I had this entrepreneurial bug and I didn't know what I was going to do. And that's, that's kind of when I met Chip and Chip, uh, you know, his, his original partner, as I mentioned, Wallace, uh, Wallace just, just passed away. He was looking uh, to partner with someone else. He also went to Harvard. We hooked up through the alumni network and, um, you know, in terms of med tech science background, I mean, my brother is a professor at a medical school, my older brother, uh, he's a biochemistry, he was actually chair of cell bio at, at SUNY Downstate Medical School. So uh, I had grown up reading a lot of journal articles, you know, he'd been published in a number of articles and talking about it over dinner and, and so forth. So I had some comfort there. Uh, I also spent a short time working as an advertising guy at Nature, the journal Nature. So, um, uh, you know, earlier is one of my early jobs out of college. So, so I had a little bit of background, but really this was a self-taught thing. And I think that it actually has paid off in terms of having fresh eyes on how to, how to address uh, the problem that we're addressing and, 
which is a cross between consumer and 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 regulated and regulated medical. Um, so uh, I think it's actually helped me. And and crowdfunding is, I guess, another example. It's kind of a different take on on how to raise money, and it, it kind of fits into the whole story of how we we built the company. A couple of English majors, uh, Chip and I. It's pretty actually, that's fascinating. I, I had no idea about that background. And explain it, well, we'll get into it, but explain some of the, the advertising background that it takes to actually crowdfund, which we'll talk about. Um, and then lo and behold, what, what is Fisher Wallace? Tell us about the product. Tell us about um, the company itself. Where are you? Sure. So Fisher Wallace makes one device. It's a wearable, non-invasive brain stimulation device that received 510K clearance um, for the treatment of depression, anxiety, insomnia. And this was a, originally a grandfathered 510K um, category device called cranial electrotherapy stimulation. And then in 2019, the FDA, if you think about it, it was grandfathered in 1976. So in 2019, the FDA uh, finally updated the, the regulation of these devices and in doing so um, required clinical trial data for each indication. So it stopped becoming purely a substantial equivalence pathway, uh, like a CPAP device or something like that. So if you're an established manufacturer, if you're already on the market and you, you were marketing under the old 510K, they allowed you to continue to do that uh, while you uh, ran the trials and submitted them and waited for FDA to, to rule on them. And if you're a new manufacturer trying to come in with a CS device, you, you now have to do this, uh, a trial for each indication or one, you can choose one before you come to market. So it's really tightened up the, you know, the, the regulatory um, around this category, which I think is a good thing because if you're treating depression or anxiety or insomnia, you want to know that there's clinical data supporting safety and effectiveness. So, um, and we are the only trick there was that 2019 in December when the FDA said that um, we were preparing that then to start some trials and then the pandemic hit. So we had to adjust how we did those trials. We ended up running uh, all three trials. We, we, did, we pursued all three indications all during the pandemic. We finished enrollment in December and submitted the results on, in March, this past March. Uh, so that experience alone was incredible running. Uh, we had 800 patients in these trials. Um, and so what we've really are now doing is, is uh, focusing now that we've done that research on a version two device, it's going to look a lot better. We hired Eric Fields, who's this kind of superstar industrial designer. He's worked for Beats and um, uh, he did the first Nest thermostat. So he is going to be producing uh, our version two device. We're building an app for it that is going to be um, tracking symptoms and cognitive performance. And we now have 70,000 patients. Uh, about 16,000 prescribers now. Um, so we have, you know, kind of a install base, not a huge one, but, but enough where we can, for, you know, for instance, get some real feedback on, on the app development process. So uh, by the time we release it with version two, we would have obtained a lot of learnings from our current customers. Um, and then additionally, we're not done with the research. So we're, we're launching a study with the major police department this month um, on anxiety uh, primarily, we're also tracking sleep. And so that'll be the first time we're working with a big institution. And the idea there is, um, you know, with a successful outcome, we'll start building a, uh, kind of a B2B business where we're, uh, we'll be helping other police departments and, and, and other kinds of institutions and corporations provide mental health treatment to their, to their employees. And, uh, you know, the nice thing about wearable brain stimulation, very little side effects, 
uh, I think our, you know, I can't speak to the details of our trials, but we, we had success in the trials and I'll let that speak for itself when it's published. Uh, we're working on submitting that this month to our first journal uh, from the studies we did this, this past year. Um, so I think there's an opportunity to kind of create a new standard of care. Uh, you know, we've gone, you know, from in the mental health field kind of started with psychotherapy, right. And, and then moved to drug therapy. And, and, um, and now, you know, I think we're, we're poised to, you know, drug therapy is not going to go away, but I, I think we're, we're poised to kind of create a, a, a new era of, of mental health treatment that's low side effects actually improves cognitive function. And, um, is enjoyable to use and safe to use. And, you know, so I, and will finally now, I think be scientifically validated in a way it's never been before. And we would not have been able to do those trials if we not have been able to fund them without the equity crowdfunding. Um, so, so there was really an immediate direct result from being able to do that. And just for the audience to hear, if we can walk through the most typical example, whether it's eventually once it's fully on the market or however it works, but Utilizing a Fisher-Wallace device, what would be the optimal clinical patient? And then what could you expect from it? Like what, what is sure. the so, product uh, for who? Uh, we're we're going to be focusing, I think, more and more instead of um, uh, kind of di diluting the brand. There's a question, right? If you, we have, if you have the possibility of doing three indications, what there's an argument to be made to really focus on one. And kind of own that one, and so I think we're we're moving towards generalized anxiety disorder as the one that that we want to quote unquote own as a category. And there's a lot of people with generalized anxiety disorder. It skyrocketed during the pandemic. Hopefully that'll come down, but it's it's still uh, depending on what journal article you read, it was like 17 percent of the U.S. population um, during the pandemic, if, if not higher. So, um, and you wear the device for 20 minutes, once in the morning, once in the evening. So right after you wake up, right before you go to bed. Uh, and, you know, we've seen not just in the trials we did this past year, but in the 70,000 patients, so anecdotally, and in some of the smaller trials we've done, we did a, a, a small pilot study at Mount Sinai, for instance, 2015, is that the results are rapid. So talking about a two week, uh, you know, uh, you, you get a response rate. Um, so so it's a it's it's something that patients will can use and providers can use for for rapid uh, trim to, uh, symptom relief, and um, and we are an e-commerce business, so we we're kind of adopting the hims and hers model, if you will, uh, of having an integrated prescription process and you know kind of having a very similar experience to hims and hers, except we're selling a device, not generic uh, drugs, and um, and so you know it's pretty, pretty uh, rapid to obtain a device too um, through telemedicine. And then if it doesn't work for you and there's no real risks, I mean, there's headache and dizziness or a very small percentage um, are, the, are the side effects. Uh, customers can return it for a refund. So we have about a 15% return rate and we do a hundred percent refund. So the patient's not out. It is an out-of-pocket purchase. I think eventually once we have this research published, uh, we can we can start pursuing some broader insurance coverage, um, but it's affordable. It's five hundred dollars. Um, you have, there's payment plans, so and there's a return policy. So so we're kind of again uh, taking that hims and hers approach of saying how much value not only is there in the in the in the therapeutic, but in avoiding the insurance process, which can be burdensome, 
uh, and unpredictable and frustrating for, for customers. And so um, with, uh, you know, we're, we're at a price point where we can do that, where we can actually uh, build an e-commerce model um, and, and with the telemedicine piece, which has now become ubiquitous. So, so I think, uh, you know, in short, that's kind of the pitch, uh, you know, nice. we, we have this, we have this e-commerce uh, machine, we'll have some other channels we're building and we're building a, a beautiful new device um, that's going to be supported by, by published data. So, and I, and I have to ask this uh, before we get into the crowdfunding aspect, but um, a fascinating backstory of an English major at Harvard, and now you're leading as a CEO, right. a, a med tech company, right? So um, just for all those out there listening and who knows where you are in the world, or if you're working at a donut shop, or you're currently a CEO of a med tech company and want to be one again, or one for the first time, it, it's clearly possible, right? So you could build this career and still never know where you're going to end up. I mean, how is that, that experience of taking over a med tech company as a CEO and the learning lessons that you've had to go through, you know, regulated industries, medical industries, clinical trials, um, operational leadership. I mean, how, how was that whole experience of taking that on from where you came from to what you've been doing now? Uh, well, the first thing I'd say is from learned experience it is I wouldn't have been able to do everything. I wouldn't be able to accomplish everything we've accomplished without some really, really talented, experienced consultants, whether it's our law firm, we work, we work with Hyman Phelps McNamara, which is rated number one FDA law firm. We've worked um, with Sidley in the past. Uh, we work with uh, Phil Phillips, who's a, a device uh, regulatory consultant who was at FDA for many, many years. Um, you know, during the clinical, tri the clinical trials, I mean, it was funny when the clinical trials were running, were running I was managing more people in the, about you know, two and a half times my own company employees. So it, it was the, the team doing that was, I mean, we had tw over 20 psychiatrists that we hired in different states to do the, the, the screenings. And we had to build that, that whole network from scratch in order to run trials during the pandemic. Uh, we, we only use psychiatrists. Um, and so, you know, and the PI, you know, very well credentialed Kyle Lapidus, he had, he had run studies for ketamine and deep brain stimulation. And, and so the key is, you know, is, is, and these are not inexpensive people. And, and so it's like, don't, don't, don't be uh, too thrifty in, in trying to get, you know, it, you get what you pay for and, and it's expensive. Um, but we, you also find ways to save money. So not doing it through an institution, for instance, with these trials and doing it remotely, that saved us a fortune. You know, we didn't have the overhead. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there, there's a lot of learn. I, I, I learned a lot. I became, you know, I've been doing this now for 12 years. So uh, I am a regulatory expert for at least my category of device. Um, you know, I've had meetings with Jeff Sheeran at, at, at FDA over the years. And, and you know, I, I can... I can, I, I'm an expert in my particular field of, of regulatory. Um, and so if you just have a passion for what you're doing and you, you work hard, and I think if you have a real problem solving mind, which frankly, you know, being a novelist, it, there's a lot of problem solving there, every single detail. I think it's more, it's not that there's a direct uh, connection to running a med tech, but there is a, in terms of a problem solving mind. Um, so, you know, I think uh, that's just what my brain is attracted to solving these kinds of problems and complex problems. And I'm good at 
multitasking. I mean, um, you know, I think, uh, and you know, it just, there was a lot that I could, I know, you know, there was some technical and I lean on the, on the, on our doctors and our medical advisory board for, you know, for clinical stuff. And I've, and I've talked to many, many, many of our prescribers and, and so just over time, you, you, you develop an expertise. I'm never going to be clinically as, as on point as someone that's a psychiatrist treating patients all the time, but I, I have enough knowledge to be able to inform business strategy and, um, and then I think operationally, I think, you know, I have, um, I actually, there was another job I took out of, shortly after college as a, as, as a, as executive recruiter, it was for .com. Uh, I worked for about two years for a company, uh, called sales athlete, which I believe is still around. Um, and that was, uh, I was working there around the 2001, uh, soon after college, uh, the, kind of the, the internet bubble period of like, you know, 99 or 2000. And so I, I was interviewing a ton of people. Uh, we were doing some very high level searches. This was at a time when, for instance, AOL was just merging with Time Warner. Um, so we, we were tasked with finding people for those jobs. Um, and so I think that was actually a really important skill in terms of being able to hire uh, well and be able to quickly read resumes and you know, read like 150 resumes and be like, here are the three that are worth calling. Um, and then being able to tell very quickly from the call, if this is going to be a cultural fit or not. I, I think that's really helped. I haven't been right every time, but I think the vast majority of my people have hired have really worked out well. And we've had long, we've had high retention. And so that's really important because when you're running a small company, which visual walls basically still is, um, you, there's not enough, if, you're wearing so many hats as the CEO, you, what you don't want to have to do is be putting out fires culturally or people who are, who you find are not being able to do, to work fairly independently. Um, you know, because I'm focused on so many other things that are a little bit more long-term that I really need a team that can handle the day-to-day -day operations. So I've been, so that's been very important to, to, to do that. And over those 12 years, obviously you gained that experience, but it's, it's still a pretty cool story of hearing from where you came from and now running a, a med tech company. So I want to get into the topic of the hour, which is obviously crowdfunding and the capital raising experience that you've also yep. gained. Um, before we jump into the crowdfunding thing, over your 12 years of being with Fisher Wallace, have, have you raised capital before, or at least during these years in other avenues? And then finally crowdfunding was your last resort or, or tell us about some of that history of how you went there. And then I'll couple it with um, was crowdfunding a last resort or did you try other avenues once those didn't work out or, or what led you to crowdfunding? So those two. Great question. So uh, Chip Fisher put in money to, to, he was, I would look at him as both the angel and seed investor. Um, and you know, not, not, a, not a lot of money for a med tech startup, but, but certainly enough to get the, to get the technology and to be able to cover some of our moderate losses in the beginning. Um, but then there's a limit, right? There's a limit, you know, unless you're a billionaire, there, there, there's a limit to how much you're going to underwrite stuff, especially when you, as you typically have to in med tech, you have to go into an R and D phase and you're going to be burning money. You're not, uh, now, what was lucky about our circumstance, or I guess unusual for med tech, is that we had an operating business. Um, 
and we've always had an operating business. I mean, when I came on board, one of the first things I did because I had skills in digital marketing was to was to start building an e-commerce business. And of course, there's a prescription step. It's a prescription device, but we were able to uh, to build that with Facebook and Google advertising, kind of you know typical e-commerce direct response. And so that there, we had at least you know a couple of years where we were profitable, you know, just selling our our version one device. And this is we didn't have enough money to say invest in the kind of trials we just did or to fund you know a, a redesign or version two with kind of world class players. But we were able to have an operating business, and I think you know that um, that can give the the appearance of not growing because, you know, but I was growing. So I, I, that gave me the time to learn all the things I needed to learn while still keeping the lights on. And the more customers we had, the more patients we had, the more prescribers I have, the more you learn about your business and the more you learn about what, how patients are, uh, are using the device and how, how providers think about the device and all those things don't just happen overnight. So I think, you know, by the time um, we were kind of, we felt like we had enough of a story to raise money. This was maybe four years ago. Uh, we did reach out to some venture capital firms and what I, all of them were very complimentary of what we had achieved. I mean, they're all pretty surprised that we had an operating business. Um, we were bringing in millions of revenue four years ago. Um, you know, this year looks like we're going to do around 5 million um, next year, we're expecting to do about 12 million. Um, but, you know, we, we were, we had revenue, um, we had product market fit with a kind of a proof of concept looking device, you know, we had a lot of boxes checked, but the, the venture capital firms, at least that I met with, we didn't quite fit into their portfolio thesis, so to speak. We were either not regulated enough, like we're not medical device enough, you know, they were comfortable with, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of more hardcore uh, uh, med tech at the time. Um, and then the consumer VCs, I think we weren't really consumer enough. We were, we were regulated by FDA. Um, you know, when you start talking to a consumer investor about running trials and you don't know how long they're going to take and they, you know, they've all heard that that can be a nightmare and everything. So I, I think, um, you know, and then on the on the medical side, if you're saying, well, we're not really concerned with insurance coverage, we have a direct to consumer. It's like it was like we we're speaking different languages to both sides, and there wasn't so. So we, I would, in a sense, equity crowdfunding. Once the SEC, uh, we we're, you know, we we came into that. I think a year or a year and a half after SEC even created it, so it wasn't even an option at first, and then it became one. So in a sense, you could say it's last resort, but but really, um, you know, I think if we had if, if if it had existed, we may have pursued it first because I think what what it has done is it has given us the the, the money to to build the business to a point where you know more or larger investors we now have assets that they value. And I think it, you know, in a sense, we've taken a lot of the risk off the table for them, right? We've done the research. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I don't view it as a last resort. It kind of was for us because, you know, again, we're, we're Chip and I are pretty new to this. We just said, oh, everyone does venture capital. That's the only way to raise money, you know? And then 
I think I saw a news article about equity crowdfunding and I said, you know, we have all these customers. I bet they would want to invest uh, because our devices changed their life, you know, a lot of them. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, you know, half of our, we've raised $4 million on equity crowdfunding and about half of it's come from customers. So then let's start and stop there for just a moment because I, I want to start picking this apart. Yeah. Um, for all those listening out there then, so you tried the more traditional routes of raising money and then you learned about crowdfunding after yep. that first chapter was a little bit challenging or yep. it wasn't speaking the same language. So this is that quote unquote last resort, but um, is it fair to say that the style of technology is also very dependent on crowdfunding? For example, you had customers. What does that mean? Yep. Do you need customers as a, as a product company, a med tech company in order to crowdfund successfully? You don't need them, but the cost of capital will be less. So I would look at it. There's two ways you have, if you have customers and we had a lot of customers going into it um, who had already spent $500 on a device, um, then your cost of capital will be low, meaning that you're not spending a lot marketing the raise. You are allowed to market the raise. There are rules around that that the SEC has in terms of you have to put disclaimers and, and there are, you know, what claims you make and you have to have those be in compliance. Um, but you can't advertise now. So if you don't have customers, if you're, if you're kind of starting from scratch, which you can with what's called a reg CF, um, then th the cost of capital is going to be higher. You know, you, you could end up spending a third or half of what you raise on advertising. So how do you mitigate that? Well, you mitigate that in a sense by, by through your valuation and what you're willing to dilute. I mean, you know, if, if, if you start, if you start a business and you own hundred percent of it, um, that cost of capital may be acceptable because you, you need capital. So even if it's expensive, at least if you know where you're, what you're going to accomplish with it, um, then the cost of capital should be less after that. Right. So you may have an expensive cost if you're just starting out with no customers, cause you're going to have to advertise your way there. Um, Facebook, Google, so forth. We, we have a pretty low cost of, you know, uh, of, of acquiring an investor, you know, again, half of it came through our customers. Um, and then, you know, we've, we've been able to, uh, you know, we, we advertise a lot in our regular business, right? So, so we're actually very good at advertising. That's a, a skill set. Um, but our cost of capital, you know, was definitely, I, I'd say it's around 15% um, or so, you know, is what we're spending to market the raise. I, you know, it's really not that bad. And, you know, with equity crowdfunding, you do set your own valuation. Now you have to defend it uh, to the SEC, but you know, as long as you're not being absolutely crazy, um, you can set a, a higher valuation than a VC would give you. That, that, that's for sure. So if you look at it that way, you could say, all right, if I'm able to say, set my valuation at 2X what a VC would, then if I have to spend half of it uh, raising the capital, then ultimately I'm diluting at the same rate. Right. <laughs> so, so I think, um, but there's a, there's a clear advantage if you already have customers and, and customers who are, you know, passionate about your product. You mentioned about the dilution effect. I mean, when you are advertising or when you are in a crowdfunding raise, are they, are investors buying equity in your company? Is buying it stock. Yep. They're buying in, in our case, common stock, common stock. Okay. Yeah. So you are in theory, if, and I'm being hypothetical now, if yeah. Kelly owned 100% of Fisher Wallace and you started a crowdfunding 
platform or, or a raise rather, yeah. um, as people started investing in your company, you'd be getting diluted out and you'd have other Correct. ownership. Okay. Correct. You have to Very set quick. aside stock for it. Um, and it, this is SEC regulated, by, SEC regulated, by the way. And, and, and so there are, there are lawyers that are specialists in equity crowdfunding now. And yes, but yes, that you, that's the math you do. You're going to be diluted. You, you set aside a block of stock, which, which can cover the ceiling of your raise. And you, you can uh, close the raise down at any time. Um, so you don't have, like our ceiling is 10 million. We're, 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 we have a raise now that's capped at 10 million. We may not want to raise it all at the current valuation, right? So, um, and so we, we have the option of closing it down uh, and, and we could relaunch it at a higher valuation. We could not relaunch it and say, you know, if we're, as I alluded to, if we're getting to the point where we are attracted to, uh, to larger type investors, then we may not have to pursue the, the, the equity crowdfunding anymore. There may be advantages to not pursuing it. Um, in terms of speed of, of raising, uh, so um, so yeah, it, but yes, you know, you, you you dilute, but again, you have you are largely in control of your valuation versus uh, having it defined, by, you know, by 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 the investor. So then, let's just walk us through the process, right? So you you tried other avenues of raising capital, and there was this one day you found out about crowdfunding and started. Yeah pulling the string and learning more about it. Um, give us that good story of the day that you discovered crowdfunding to the time that you put it in an actionable item to start pursuing it. Yeah. What are the mechanics of getting it up and running? Yeah. How do you choose which crowdfunding platform to use and why? Yeah. And then once you get up and running and launch, the mechanics afterwards, the advertising, the, the sure. process sure. of it, and then also the time how long does it actually take for you to typically close and, and then have that money hit the bank? Just give us that whole A to Z. Sure. So there are two uh, common uh, types of equity crowdfunding. One's called Reg CF, which is regulated crowdfunding. And the other is called Reg A+. We are currently doing a Reg A+. This is our second campaign. Our first campaign was Reg CF. And the differences are, are I'll explain. The Reg CF, when we launched, had a cap of about a million. It was like 1.06. That's all you could raise on Reg CF. It did not require audited financials, but it required uh, financials that had gone under a professional third-party review. So not quite as vigorous of a process as audited financials, not as expensive either. And the application for Reg CF is a much lighter application for SEC. So the legal fees are less and the time it takes to get approved by SEC to launch it, it takes less time. Um, so in that first raise, the Reg, Reg CF, I think we spent about $25,000 in legal fees and setup fees, uh, setup fees with Start Engine in legal fees to get the, all the paperwork done and to get the uh, financials reviewed. It was about 25 or 30 grand. And I think the whole process took uh, maybe two or three months. Uh, it was fairly quick. When we, we we raised, we maxed out that raise in about four months um, and then decided let's do the Reg A, Reg A plus rather, because that had a, a maximum of 50 million. And so you don't have to go for all that. We decided to cap ours at 10. That does require audited financials of three years, if you, if you have them, as many as much as you have, but three years 
for us because we'd been around for longer. Uh, that's and then there's a much bigger application to the SEC. So that costs us around a hundred grand between the uh, legal fees, the auditing. Um, Sargent fees are very low. Um, Sargent Engine, I think it's six percent they take uh, of a commission. So Start Engine is the platform's name, and they yeah. Take so so yeah. So let me exp so let me explain the choice. So the platform we chose was Start Engine. When I first looked at the various platforms, and there's more now than when we did the Reg CF. Uh, there was Seed Invest, I think Republic and WeFunder were, were around, and Start Engine. The reason I chose Start Engine one is, and I think this is still true today, they had the largest total amount raised of any of them. And I really liked the, uh, the campaign pages themselves, meaning the pages where the investor would, it, is basically getting pitched. And, and invest, it's, it, had, it was the most visually appealing from like an e-commerce perspective. Like it, it had nice, nice design, the, the page. It was easy to navigate, easy to understand, very graphical. Whereas I felt some of the other pages, other campaigns, um, platforms didn't have quite as, as nice looking pages. I just, I, and I just thought that would be a problem, you know, cause this is basically in a sense, a kind of e-commerce. Um, those other companies have now, they look a lot more like Start Engine. I think like the Republics and the WeFunders, their pages have evolved. Um, there's probably less difference now between the three. Uh, the other thing was just the Start Engine team. Uh, I, I've enjoyed working with them. They've, uh, they're professional. And the founder of Start Engine is a guy named Howard Marks, who uh, is a serial entrepreneur, was one of the co-founders of Activision before it was merged or so, you know, so he's, he has a, he has a pretty uh, long track record of successful uh, startups um, that have become very large. And, and so I just said, you know, they're probably, and they're also raising money themselves on their own platform. So I, I, there's, I, I just thought this was a, the best approach um, for the reg CF. And then once you're kind of in with, with this platform, it's just natural to kind of, do it, do, do your second one on it because you, you know how everything works, you know, everyone who works there, you know? Um, so, uh, so, it, so getting the reg a plus launch took up like more like seven months. Now in the time that that was happening, the sec actually changed the rules on reg CF and allows reg CF to not raise 1.06 anymore. You can raise up to five. So if I had, if that had existed when we were going through, before we decided to do the reg A plus, we probably just would have done another reg CF and just set it at five because it would have taken less time, less expense. Um, but we did the reg A plus. So now, you know, and in terms of disbursements, you know, we, we get disbursements uh, almost on a weekly basis. I mean, there, there is a, uh, there's a, I would say there's, there's maybe a, a, a two to four week lag from the time someone clicks the invest now button and invests. And then when you get the money, um, because there are, uh, there is regulation around allowing them to cancel. Uh, then you, then there, there is like some standard, uh, uh money laundering regulations that apply, especially for larger investments. So there are some steps that have to take, and then the money goes into an escrow account. Uh, you have, as a company, we contract with both Start Engine and the escrow company. So the escrow company has also holds a portion of the of the total raise, not a lot, but in case there are 
credit card chargebacks and things like that. So, uh, but at this point, you know, we've kind of, it's, it's, um, uh, it's a very rapid, I mean, we, we, again, we get disbursements on a weekly basis and we do treat it like a business unit, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I was joking, not joking. I was exhausted <laughs> but during the clinical trials. I was telling my wife, I'm basically running three businesses. I'm running an operating medical device business. I'm running three clinical trials simultaneously with 800 patients and I'm running crowdfunding uh, to pay for that. So, you know, the, the, the clinical trials cost us about two and a half million dollars. We didn't have that when we launched them. Um, we were, you know, funding them as we go. And, and, and so it worked, you know, and, and we did that with some confidence. I mean, the first month on Start Engine, we raised a quarter million dollars without a single dollar of advertising. That was, it was basically MailChimp uh, to our customers. So it wasn't, you know, we weren't uh, being reckless. We just, we knew that uh, we were budgeting the trials and said, you know what, it looks like we, we're going to be on pace to raise enough to cover them and some more. And that's how we did it. Um, and, uh, and so that was, that was a crazy time. Um, now I, I just have uh, the product development and the crowdfunding and the operational business, but that, that is not as crazy as, as um, having three trials at the same time. <laughs> so it sounds like, I mean, once you get up and running and you find a platform that you feel comfortable with, like you mentioned, it, yeah. it seems smooth running after that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The advertising piece, I want to come back to that because it seems like that, that especially if you don't have customers and even if you do, that seems to be like the biggest, let's call it burden. What's part of that process of the actual launch? I mean, do you have to put together content and material and what's like the hardest part about crowdfunding? Yeah. So, so um, there is the campaign page itself, which is, which is legally where all the potential investors need to go because that's where the disclaimers are. And, you know, um, you, you really, you really need to drive the traffic to, to that page. And, um, uh, you know, you can have, if you have a company website, you can describe the raise, have the disclaimer and then drive traffic to the campaign page. But that campaign page is really the main, uh, I would say tool of persuasion, right? Where, where you're making your case. Why is this a good investment? Uh, and it's, primarily a retail investor case, but you don't have the, it's, this is not Robin hood. This is not, these are not meme stocks because there's no liquidity, right? So, so you are making a longer term investment case. Um, and well, it's not that there's no liquidity. It, there, this is not an actively traded stock. So you, there's a hold period. And um, so what you have on that page, the first thing is, is the pitch video. And that video is, I think, important. Um, and we, uh, you know, spent I don't know ten or fifteen thousand dollars in that video. Not a lot. Uh, it's mostly me talking, and then cutting to to some patients and doctors talking, and then some I think engaging imagery of showing kind of you know we have some video of our factory. We have, uh, uh, you know, kind of showing some validation that the, that we're a real business. We've been around, but the opening the opening line of our video is from a patient who, uh, you know, is an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, um, had really serious mental health issues and had, it was completely turned around by our device. And so 
um, although the main bulk of the pitch underneath that video is about we're investing in trials, we're investing in product development, there's an emo there's a there's an immediate emotional uh, hook because you realize that this is not just a business that's out to make money. This is a business that's changing lives in a in a real way, in a way that people care about. Um, and so I think that it's that combination of emotional kind of gravity and then a strong business case where you're showing you've really thought this through. Here are the milestones you're trying to hit with the money so that you can show people this is what we're doing with your money. And the other thing is, and any venture capital investor will tell you this, uh, it was funny, I was watching another podcast from Jason Calcanis, which I, I don't know if you've ever watched him, but I, I like his, his startup podcast as well. And he was talking about, you know, it's a red flag if you have a portfolio company and your CEO stops updating you, right? If it's like suddenly you don't hear from your portfolio company for a couple months, that's not a good sign. That means you're probably going bankrupt, right? We, we make it a point of updating our investors once or twice a week. Um, and so there is an ongoing content part of their campaign page where you have an update section. And when you post that update, it gets sent to your investors and also people who are following the page, almost like in a kind of a Facebook type way. You can follow the page without being an investor if you're part of Start Engine. And I think we have like 7,000 followers or something. So, and uh, so, so that's important is to, is to, is to, you know, you can't manufacture facts, but, you know, we were actually having quite a lot of breaking news all the time. I mean, the trials, we had different launches, they were ending at different, you know, times, there was all kinds of stuff going on. We were interviewing different companies for product development. So there was a lot of story to tell. And I think if you do that, um, and you, you, you both keep momentum going as a business, and then you communicate that momentum to your investors, um, you will you will do well on 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 the platform. So basically, creating this content media portion for this splash page, if you will, yep. the, the campaign page. In theory, that's replicating the executive summary and the long slide deck and the flying to all these yep. venture capitalists and pitching constantly. That's right. Yep. So when you, when you hear CEOs of medtech companies saying, "In order to raise my raise." Um, or raise my fund, I, I had to pitch 100 times, 200 times, 50 times. I mean, what you're doing is you're doing all the upfront content work, creating an engaging story and storytelling through this media that you're creating and putting it on a campaign page so that whomever, whenever they show up. That's correct. It's you're not personally doing it every time. It's replicatable. It's like, it's the software model, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And so that's where the advertising you're alluding to comes into play. If you do that, if you do that content really well, um, then the, the traffic you're sending to is, is hearing that pitch over and over. And then it's just a conversion game, you know, so, so to speak, it's what, what percentage of, 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 of your site traffic converts into investors. And, you know, um, the minimum investment is $500 right? Um, the max, there is no real maximum. If, if you, you know, we have, we have investors who put in 10,000. Um, and I think, you know, it's, this is a startup investing platform. The reason why the SEC wanted to have this is because they didn't want VCs to be the only uh, folks at the table, right? Uh, everyone now, not everyone, but a lot of people are aware of, of that much of the gains in in value are are not shared with the public right they're they're shared among the vcs and so this is a means of democratizing that and 
And when you have a $500 minimum investment, or, you know, I think our average investment is around $1,200. Um, you know, you, you have to, you have, you have to, uh, part of the, by the way, part of the investment process for the, for the investor is they have to verify their income. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, thresholds or, you know, of, of percentage of income that, you know, the, the SEC doesn't want people betting their entire life savings on this for good reason. And, and so, but, you know, 500 or $1,200, that is an affordable loss, right, for, for, for people who are, who are in the investing uh, space, who, who are looking for this. And, um, and so then it's about aggregating that. And so I think we have a total of 3,000 investors between the two, the two campaigns. Um, again, that's common stock. It's not voting stock. So we, we've maintained control, voting control, my, Chip and I, um, but you know the the investors will certainly participate in any exit and and you know the valuation of the first raise was 15 million the valuation of this raise which was launched less than a year after the first one is 40 million and you know we are um you know like i said we're going to do around 5 million in revenue it looks like this year and we and we've already now have the have the have the research completed so um you know, you can make your own decision if you think that's a, a, a high valuation, a reasonable valuation. Um, but, you know, certainly the mental health market has exploded over the last year. That's no, that's not, uh, everyone knows that. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there is basically, that, that's kind of the, where, you, you know, the, the SEC wants to make sure that people are not investing too much money, uh, that the risks are clearly presented, and that, we have three years of audited books, so you can come onto the campaign page and look at our P&Ls. You know, that's actually a lot more transparency uh, uh, in a sense than some than some private investors will get from a startup. So, you know, we have audited books. It, you can, and, and, and at part of the SEC rules is you have to continually provide these, um, uh, these updated financials. I think it's twice a year we have to provide audited financials. So, so there is a lot of, of, um, of, of good, you know, of, uh, uh, regulatory oversight of this. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I self-taught myself on, on the FDA and now I'm learning about SEC regulation. It's it, but you know, it's actually pretty manageable. So, so I have a, a few couple, I should say a few big questions that came from that. Yeah. And I'm sure the, the listeners want to understand. So with 3000 investors, yeah. what does your cap table look like and how does that work with an actual crowdfunding platform? Like, is it 3000 people on your cap table or does it all come up under one line on your cap table saying? Um, yeah. It, 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 so it's, it's uh, my understanding that's maybe a, I have to defer to our, to our lawyer on that. I, I think we have 3000 investors, but on, when we look at the cap table uh, we have kind of the block of common stock that we set aside for the raise. And then we have the, the voting stock that the founders have. Um, and, and so, you know, in that sense, it's kind of simple. I, I think it would be maybe more complicated if we were selling voting stock. Got it. And, and so, you know, we didn't want that complication because we, not because we're, we're maniacal. It's just because we didn't, if we were to, to work with a strategic or a, or a, um, a large investor, we wanted to make it a little bit cleaner for, for them. So, so, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't look at that as you know. Again, with with most of these, a lot of these, we estimate about half of these investors being our own customers. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a validating thing, and I'm I'm glad they're 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 there. Um, and so it's, it's inspiring. Do, do you think? And another big question. I mean, it sounds almost too good to be true, right? So like you found these last resort, you make some great content, you raise really quickly, um, no voting rights, all this kind of stuff. Who, who wouldn't be a good candidate for crowdfunding specific to medtech from what you can wrap your head around? Like if the next stent is being um, developed or if the next neuromodulation implantable device or the next surgical robot, I mean, is your type of technology, albeit regulated or, and, and falling within that med tech ca category, um, can any medical device or should any medical device consider the crowdfunding platform or I are there downsides? So. I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, you have to, if, I think if you're, if you have a business model, that's going to require many years of, of, of R and D, um, you just need to communicate that. That may be a little bit more of a challenge, uh, you know, if, if you're going to say to people, we're not even going to have a product in four years or something. Um, you know, I think, but if you have a product that can be commercialized, say in two or three years, I think it's a, I think that you're, can't, you're a strong candidate. I, I think that's a, that's a close enough window for people, uh, for the, for investors to retail investors, um, uh, to, you know, to, to, to feel like there, there's at least a possibility of some kind of exit within five years or something. So I, I think, um, you know, but, but, but there's nothing else that would really limit it. I mean, I, I think, uh, I, I hope that there's more companies like that that come in because I think it will actually raise the reputation of equity crowdfunding in general. I mean, you know, I have seen some, some kind of wacky business models and things that I would never invest in on equity crowdfunding. I'm not talking about start engine specifically. I'm just saying in general, you can find some businesses where like, that does not look like a very, you know, uh, sound business model. All right. And, and, but, uh, but there are, I'm seeing more and more real quality companies and, and with quality founders and people who have come out of Y Combinator and, and other things showing up in equity crowdfunding now. And I think for all the reasons that we're just talking about. Um, and so, I think the quality of the companies is improving, but you know, it's investor beware. I mean, you gotta, you know, as an investor, as a, you know, if you're looking to invest in these things, you know, do, do your diligence, you know, and, and, and you can contact the company, you can interview, uh, you know, you, I mean, just even, you know, for a company like ours, you could, you could go on our website and interact with customer service and, and, you know, ask questions about the technology and, we have live chat, you know, um, we're not going to be pitching you an investment. We don't do that on chat. We don't do that on what on Fisher Wallace. In fact, there's almost no mention of the raise on Fisher Wallace. You, you wouldn't see it if you went to the website. And we do that intentionally because we we're selling a medical device on FisherWallace.com. We're not, you know, we don't want to distract people from that. Um, so we do really treat this church and state uh, uh, in, from a marketing perspective. Would you say moving forward as being the CEO of Fisher Wallace, any future raise that you need, is it going to be on crowdfunding or will there ever be a, an amalgamation of possibly going back to VCs once the valuation gets higher or 
other types of avenues of, of financing Fisher Wallace or moving forward, if you ever need to fundraise, is it simply going to be going back to what you know and has been successful, which is crowdfunding? Yeah, I think I think moving forward, there's there are other reasons now for, for instance, potentially taking some strategic investment where there's more than money. So, you know, one of the things that we that I did because you're obviously you're not getting you're getting money out of Start Engine. You're not getting advice and counsel as you or 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 connections or you know the ability to kind of uh, choreograph an exit as you as you can get with a VC. So uh, we Peter Rojas, who's a who's a, a serial entrepreneur and is at BetaWorks Ventures right now. I've known him for a long time, and I I he agreed to come on board as a as an advisor. Uh, formally, you know, so there's equity involved. And so what I've kind of look at that is I'm, I'm compensating a venture capitalist as an advisor and I'm getting the money from start engine. So in a way I'm getting the best of both worlds where I'm not getting the insight and the connections and all, all that from the start engine raise, I'm getting the money, but I have access to those things by, by working with someone like Peter Rojas and Betaworks is not an investor in our company, but I'm, I'm having a high, high level of, of advice and counsel from an advisor like that. So on that, then the downsides of crowdfunding based on what you've known right now, and, and let's utilize that as um, the lack of counsel that you're getting. Like you said, if you went from a VC, they'd be pro- providing you more counsel and guidance than simply just writing a check. Yeah. From crowdfunding, you're just getting the check. You're not getting necessarily the counsel after that. Um, and then also even the advertising piece, right? But you mentioned that is offsetting pitching a hundred times or flying across the country right. pre COVID a hundred times and all those expenses that used to come into there. Right. So we and get time, that. time. Yeah, time. exactly. Yeah. Which is huge, especially as you know, I mean, I hear this so many times from entrepreneurs saying I'm a CEO of a company and I feel like crowd um, raising capital and fundraising is my full-time job and running a company is my part-time job whenever I can. I do not feel that way, but I can say that. That has been a huge relief. Yep. That's, so that's good to know. So the downsides of crowdfunding, if there's two, three, four, five examples, for those listening out there who are just wowed and maybe stuck in this valley of death of not being able to raise capital and they need more capital and now crowdfunding could be an alternative source for them, which sounds great, and I'm glad that there's now an alternative in addition to venture capital and angel groups, et cetera, things to be aware from that you've learned now, like what are some of the downsides of crowdfunding beyond the lack of counsel or guidance that you're getting from the investors? Yeah, I, I would say you you could discover that the cost of capital is is too high, meaning that if, if you're not starting with customers like we did, who are already um, where you're preaching to the choir, so to speak, where you, you know, you have um, passionate customers. If you don't have that, you could discover that the um, advertising is just, you don't want to spend all the money you're raising advertising, right? And the thing is, as equity crowdfunding increases in popularity, as more companies come into equity crowdfunding, there is going to be pressure on the, the Facebook advertising and the Google advertising, right? I mean, there, there is a Facebook audience right now called equity crowdfunding. When I started, when I advertised on that in our Reg CF, it was profitable. It's not profitable anymore because there are, you know, a thousand companies bidding on that particular audience now where there was maybe, you know, 
50 or 100 when I was doing. So, so you have to be creative in how you market and but still stay within SEC regulation about that. So for instance, you can't just go and find an influencer on TikTok and say, here's a bunch of money, promote uh, our stock to your audience. That is not legal. You can't do that. Um, you, but there are ways to work with influencers if you have, uh, you know, to build, say, awareness for your brand that will increase searches for your brand. And then people are finding in, in search uh, either your campaign page or, or other things or, or your company website. And then, then the traffic can come in that way. Um, there, there are, we are, you know, without, um, I guess as it would be considered a trade secret, so I'm not going to spill all the beans, but we are, we are working with some data companies to build audiences that's not Facebook, that's not Google, um, but to be able to identify intent. And we're working with some sophisticated audience building technology partners, um, all above board. Uh, but my view is Facebook is probably a bit saturated with equity crowdfunding advertising because that's it's the easiest way to advertise, especially if you're not an advertiser by trade. You know, if you're a CEO of a startup, oh, using Facebook's pretty easy to advertise on. There are more complicated ways to advertise that that I'm getting into um, and testing that I think will yield results because I'm pretty sure very, very few other equity crowdfunding companies are doing what we're going to be doing um, in terms of audience building uh, outside of the social. So I would say that's the biggest challenge is figuring out that piece. Now, you know, there may be, uh, you know, there could be other PR and there's sponsored content opportunities. We're doing some stuff with sponsored content, meaning that, uh, there are articles appearing on websites uh, where there is retail investor traffic that is telling our story and it's um, it, it's more of kind of native type advertising. So it's an article that is promoted with all the other articles on this site. Um, there, are, there are things like that. Some of them have worked, some of them haven't. Um, we have found some, uh, it, it basically what I'm trying to get at is you have to be creative. I'd say it's probably wise to hire uh, a, a, an agency or a marketing expert, like an Upwork or some, but who's not just going to be doing Facebook. I mean, I, I think my feeling is Facebook is kind of saturated um, with 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 this kind of advertising. So we're we're not we we don't advertise on Facebook at all. Um, I don't advertise on Facebook for Fisher Wallace right now. Um, I think it's good as a retargeting platform, but in terms of prospecting, uh, it's not so uh, for us. And so um, I, that's the, that's the biggest, that's going to be the biggest challenge. Uh, but you also may not need to raise that much. It depends what your, your capital needs are. You know, I think for us funding, funding clinical trials is expensive. We needed to raise millions of dollars to really pull this off. We did. I, I not everyone's going to be able to do that. Um, but you may be able to raise enough money, at least to do a proof of concept device that you can then maybe raise some, some uh, more sophisticated capital to actually do a trial with. I mean, I, I think it, I would try and, if you don't have customers, I would also try and keep the, what you're trying to accomplish the capital, you know, reasonable without having to raise too much money, but enough to kind of get you to a milestone. Um, 
don't don't bite off too much. Don't think you're going to just go and raise a couple million bucks on your first time. You know, you may raise 200 grand that may cost you 50 grand. All right. So what, what can you do with 150 grand? Um, you know, that could get you a, a, a prototype device maybe, or, or, you know, um, or, or an app. Um, so I, th th those would be my recommendations. My final question for you, and I thank you very much for your time is the concept of an exit or how do investors get paid? Is it the same thing like with venture capitalists and anyone else who gets involved in any other style of financing a company? I mean, like if I wanted to give you $1,500, to invest in Fisher Wallace through a crowdfunding platform, am I getting a certificate of approval and I just hold that in my sock drawer until you call me up or email me one day and say, we got bought or we're in public? How does that work? Yeah. So Start Engine, this is, uh, I think they're the only ones in the space who have accomplished this so far. I'm sure others will follow like Republic and WeFunder, which are the other two big ones. Um, they have created a secondary market. So they have, they have actually created a trading platform and we have signed onto that as an option. So we're not obligated to join it, but we have the option of joining their trading platform after we close our current campaign. So after you close a reg CF or reg a campaign campaign, if you were to, if you're on start engine and you agree to, uh, and you decide to go on their secondary, then the, the, the shares can be traded. Now, the question is, what's the demand for the shares, right? I mean, Start Engine itself is, has actually spent a lot of time and money building a pretty, their own big audience of, of, of I think they have hundreds of thousands of people on the platform. So that's probably where the demand is going to come from initially. But you know, uh, so that's that actually is an exit option in a sense. At least it's a liquidity option. I wouldn't call it an exit option. It's it's a liquidity option. Um, but the outside of that, which is an interesting option, uh, you know, we're we're going to keep that. You know, we because we could theoretically decide to go on that trading platform at a, at a higher valuation, right? And 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 if we have uh, you know a major breaking news story that we would tie with that, you know, if we got a, a new approval, we got a huge journal article published, et cetera, that could then lead natural interest to the trading platform. And then there's, you know, th th that could work. I could see that being a, a possibility. Other than that, I, I think what's more likely, I, you know, this is that, is that, you know, we're probably, the probably most likely exit for us is a strategic acquisition. Um, and you know that could be anything from digital health to uh, consumer device to tech. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of companies that I think could benefit from a hardware platform that's scientifically validated, it has new FDA clearance which we've applied for, um, and has you know. I, so I think that's probably the most likely. Um, IPO is obviously always there. We're just, you know, we're, we're not at the scale yet. We're not going to be at that scale for a few years. I think we're, we're doing a hundred million in revenue where you typically see companies go public. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, it's possible, you, you know, you do see pharma and medtech obviously going public with much less revenue if they have a great uh, shot at some regulatory outcomes. So those are all on the table, I, I think. Uh, and we, you know, we kind of communicate that uh, on the campaign page it's where Start Engine has flagged us as having, you know, not flagged, but it makes people aware that we are signed up to their secondary platform if we choose to do that after we close the campaign. And then we just tell investors, 
there's obviously no guarantee of an exit, but strategic acquisition seems like it, is, it would be the most likely if it were to occur. And an IPO would, uh, we're, we're likely not at this, the size that would validate the, um, that, um, or SPAC. We're not at the size where, you know, you see most of these SPACs hunting around for. Um, so and if that were to happen then, and if I was an investor in your company, then it would be just like any other. Yeah, investor yeah absolutely. absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. So Kelly, I, I want to say thank you very much. This has been a very thorough discussion. It's been a longer discussion, which I really appreciate your time with. Um, I think the listeners out there certainly now understand that there's this new alternative option within MedTech funding called crowdfunding. And it may be great for some and not for others, but that's for them to decide. But I think at this point now we're aware of it. So I want to say thank you very much for your time. This is Kelly Roman, CEO of Fisher Wallace. And this is the MedTech podcast series where we demystify raising capital. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.